North Korea is the impossible state. It's a place that stumped leaders and policymakers for more than three decades. It has a complex history, and it has become the United States' top national security priority. Each week on this show, we'll talk with the people who know the most about North Korea. Okay, welcome to another episode of the Impossible State Podcast, CSIS Career Chair. This is Victor Cha, Senior Vice President and Career Chair at CSIS, and I am standing in for our normal host, Andrew Schwartz. Today we have as our guests, uh, Dr. Sumi Terry, who's a Senior Fellow in the Career Chair at CSIS, well known to many of the career watchers around town and around the world, former CIA, former White House National Security Council. Good to have you with us today, Sue. Wonderful to be here. And then our special guest today joining the Impossible State podcast is Scott Snyder. Scott Snyder is Senior Fellow for Korea Studies at the Council on Foreign Relations and author of South Korea at the Crossroads. Scott, it's great to have you with us today as well. Thank you so much for the invitation. So this is a pretty casual conversation because I don't know, Scott and Sue, we've known each other for decades now. But we're here really to talk today about recapping the May 21 summit that took place between President Biden and President Moon. We haven't had a chance to do this yet on the podcast. I know Sue did it on our other platform, Capital Cable, but uh, we thought we'd do that. And we couldn't have gotten two better experts together to talk about this. I think often many of the things that are said about what happens in Korea in the public policy sphere are often informed by commentary by both people like Scott and Sue. So why don't we get started? Overall, I, you know, the summit seemed to come off pretty well. There were a lot of interesting deliverables that came out of the meeting. The optics were pretty good following on the uh, summit with Suga, Prime Minister Suga. And before the Quad Summit, there looks like there's a lot of activity coming out of the Biden White House on Asia early on, led by people like the senior coordinator, Kurt Campbell. Scott, maybe I'd go to you first, since you're our special guest, and if you could give us your overview of how you thought things went at the White House on May 21. Well, overall, I think that it went a lot better than I personally expected. Uh, it was a very comprehensive statement, a good press conference, a very solid fact sheet. Frankly, the documents coming out of the White House felt very retro, because we really haven't seen a comprehensive statement of this sort about the alliance for at least four years. And it brought back a lot of memories about especially the opportunity to work together on functional issues. And so I thought it was very comprehensive. Uh, and I also think that the focus on private sector investment and supply chain resiliency was really interesting for a variety of reasons, and I hope I'm not jumping the gun here. The main one is that South Koreans have historically thought of China as the sphere of economic opportunity and the U.S. as the supplier of security. But uh, the South Korean private sector investment in the U.S. suggests that the U.S. is going to play uh, in the economic sphere and that U.S. investment for South Korean firms 
in strategic areas around supply chain resiliency is attractive. And I think that's a very interesting marker in terms of where things might go in terms of how Korea looks at the U.S. and China, respectively. Going back to something that you said, is it is it actually the case that it, over the past four years we haven't seen this sort of detailed fact sheets coming out of these summits? I, you know, I, I know obviously prior to the last four years, uh, these were, you know, we saw these quite often coming out of summits, chock full of all sorts of specifics. No, I think that there were fact sheets, but they were just a lot thinner. And the structure of these fact sheets really harkens back to the Obama days. And, and one other thing I just want to put out there is that I thought the fact sheet and the joint statement read almost like the Obama-Lee and Obama Park vision statements. And that makes this really significant because it's the first time that we've seen a U.S. administration engage with a progressive administration on a comprehensive alliance vision. And so my hope is that because that is all there in the joint statement, that it will help to depoliticize the alliance as an issue in the South Korean presidential election next year. Obviously, one of the big issues always when we come to a summit meeting between the president of South Korea and the U.S. president, especially when we're talking about progressive South Korean administrations as this one is, is the whole issue of North Korea and coordinating policy over North Korea. So uh, first, let me go to Sue and ask her, like, so, Sue, what do you think came out of this summit on North Korea? You know, I think people were expecting a train wreck in, in the run up to this summit. They thought that moon would push Biden very hard to continue the Trump type summit diplomacy. But I wanted to get your thoughts on that. What did you think came out of this on the North Korea issue? So, because uh, I don't want to sound like it's it's a criticism. So first, I want to just kind of echo what everything Scott said. I thought the summit just atmospherics was very good. And Victor, you've participated in summit preparations before, so you know what kind of work is involved. And so this was, by all indications, very successful. I agree. And the Biden administration really, you know, looked like, okay, they're very serious when they say they're going to prioritize rejuvenating U.S. alliances in Asia. And I really liked the details, too, like President Moon Jae-in participating in that Medal of Award ceremony for Colonel Puckett the Korean War veteran. What a great idea, hugely symbolic moment, very moving to see both presidents, Biden and Moon, spontaneously kneeling down next to this elderly soldier. And the whole ceremony highlighted the strength of alliance, you know, fortune blood and all of that. You know, I actually had people texting me and say, wow, this made me teary-eyed. So I think a lot of details were right, was very comprehensive, and, you know, also indicated President Biden's desire to work closely with allies as a counterweight to China and all of that. A lot of deliverables. But to go back to your question in North Korea, and I do think there was a lot of things that were right because it didn't look like there was a lot of friction there. And broadly speaking, U.S. and South Korea are aligned in this practical approach that they are going to take, that they're not going, even though denuclearization is the final goal, they're not going to be going for this grand bargain. It's going to be calibrated. Things are going to be more practical and all of that. And there are things they're going to like, like there's a now new North Korea special envoy, our very able, good friend, Sung Kim, Ambassador Kim, and so on. But let's face it, there are not a whole lot of details, right, beyond the agreement on these very broad principles. So from North Korean perspective, not a whole lot is bold or new or a lot of details. I think North Koreans are sort of sort of seeing it as kind of a they're in a waiting and see mode still. 
So I don't have a whole lot to say, except I'm glad they are broadly aligned. I'm glad Biden also even said things like he didn't, he doesn't rule out meeting with Kim Jong-un, although a whole lot of things at working level has to be done for that summit to occur. So it looks fine. I would just question whether we're truly aligned since we don't have a lot of details to look at uh, when it comes to North Korea policy. I don't, I, I'll be curious to see what Scott's take is on this. Yeah, Scott, what do you think about, one, the appointment of Sung Kim as a special envoy? And two, what do you think about what appears to be the Biden administration's willingness to accept the Singapore Declaration as a, I don't know if it's a platform, a starting point, or as a part of, not you know, basically to not reject the Singapore Declaration? Well, they said they'll build on the Singapore Agreement, the Panmunjom Declaration, which is actually, I should have pointed out, it's actually, that is something that the North Koreans will like, and I'm sure South Koreans were very relieved with. I think the affirmation of the Singapore Declaration and the announcement of the appointment of Sung Kim both actually end up being uh, the biggest proof that uh, the Biden administration is really listening to the Moon administration, because uh, those are actually both things that earlier in the uh, initial months of the Biden administration, uh, we have seen hesitancy on. Even two or three weeks ago, it didn't seem like there was going to be the naming of a special envoy. Likewise, at the 2 plus 2 meeting, it seems that there was real hesitancy to sign on to the Singapore Declaration. And so, you know, from that perspective, the Moon administration probably walked away pretty happy. What I'm a little bit concerned about is that I think that there is some confusion, as Sumi was pointing out, on the South Korean side about whether the Biden administration is now giving the Moon administration license to try to engage actively with North Korea or even to put inter-Korean relations ahead of the U.S.-North Korea relationship. In the joint statement, it's very clearly stated uh, that those two relationships should move in lockstep with each other. President Moon's comments were much more vague on that. And I've heard South Koreans suggest, uh, progressive South Koreans uh, suggest that they feel can they can return to the driver's seat in the relationship. And I don't think that that actually is what the summit was endorsing on North Korea. How would the North Koreans see things? I mean, what's their takeaway? Because while there are things, good things, like the Biden administration saying, okay, we're building on the single program and the Panmunjom Declaration, but then at the same time, we keep saying we're not going to lift sanctions, sanctions here to stay. So they don't like that. The North Koreans don't like that. Even the point about vaccination for South Korean soldiers, I'm not sure if the North Koreans were like that, because what does that mean for potentially this U.S. rock joint exercises coming up in August? And then there's the whole missile guideline. Like, there's a couple of things, I think, from North Korean perspective, when they're looking at it, just what came out of the summit, I'm not sure if there will be, is it all good? Is it bad? Is it mixed? What's, what's their takeaway? No, I agree. The North Koreans are going to see this as having a lot of mixed messaging. Before we get to North Korean perceptions, can I drill down a little bit on, on the whole policy coordination thing, which you both raised? I guess the first question is, perhaps both parties walk away from the summit with different views of what's been authorized, right, by, by the meeting. But I guess the question there is, how much of that really matters? Because in the end, the Koreans can only get as far ahead as the North Koreans will allow them to. So I guess there the question is, do you see any interest amid the pretty violent ambivalence that North Korea has shown lately with regard to dealing with South Korea after the summit. 
if there's going to be misperceptions coming out of the summit about what Washington and Seoul believe they can do now, to what extent is that going to be realized based on you know how the North Koreans are behaving? You know, that's the first point. And then the second is, how much of this is just like, I don't want to sound negative because no one wants to sound negative about the Biden administration after the last four years we've been through. But is it a lot of smoke and mirrors here? Because in the sense that, you know, as you prepare for a summit, each side is trying to help their president. And so clearly, you know, the South Koreans wanted some affirmation of the Singapore Declaration and it wanted, you know, something tangible out of the policy review. And so they checked both of those boxes, right? They got the Kurt Campbell interview saying, you know, we're going to do this. And then they got the envoy. They got the envoy name. But aside from that, like, what else is there? I mean, those are nice points for deliverables. But what's the substance? Did they, like, agree on a strategy going forward? Like, has any of, has any of this been agreed on? Well, let me try to answer the first question. I, I think it all depends on, of course, North Korea. But I can see, can't you see a scenario in which... You know, they're still waiting and see mode, but it's already June. By August, there might be U.S. rock joint exercises or not. There might probably, they're going to just say tabletop virtual again, because that's easier for the South Korean government to do, to not get the North Koreans upset. And then think about the South Korean domestic politics, right? We have a presidential election coming up on March 9th, 2022, which means six months prior to that, we the, the, the opposition party is going to have their candidate, by September, they have to announce it. My point is, I can see the North Koreans at some point turning to some sort of charm offensive with South Korea, trying to extend olive branch, but they've decided that they're not going to do that with the United States. Whether it's in September, where they decide to do it in the you know fall or winter time, they can do that. And then that gets into this kind of like, because Seoul and Washington are not there's a mixed signals and we're not completely aligned, that that's when things can get a little tricky. But I mean, yes, it's up to the North Koreans, but I, I can see them trying to sort of split Seoul and Washington and potentially heading in that direction where they extend an olive branch to Seoul. So uh, I think the second question is actually the more interesting one. And the way I would phrase it is, because if you're in Washington, you can feel the skepticism about North Korea. How is it that the Biden administration decided to give the Moon administration just about everything that it wanted on North Korea policy? And I think that it possibly gets to the fact that uh, differing timelines, as Sue just mentioned, elections are going to be held in South Korea next March. And so that means that the Biden administration only has to live with the current South Korean government for another six to nine months. And, you know, then also, I think we have to ask the question, was the Biden administration managing coordination on policy toward North Korea in order to get to its real objective of competition with China? And there, I think you can see the outlines of a kind of trade-off because the Biden administration was pretty forward-leaning on what it gave to South Korea, but the South Koreans also, you know, ended up being relatively forward-leaning, at least in terms of action-based alignment, in terms of what it was willing to do with the U.S. on issues related to China. So in the end, Scott, do you think that, uh, so from a U.S. perspective, the Singapore Declaration, the Special Envoy, those were things that the U.S. could give away. At the same time, it wouldn't lead to any sort of major rift unless, you know, unless the North Koreans turn to a charm offensive with South, as Sue's talking about. But given what we're seeing thus far, it wouldn't lead to any sort of major rift in the alliance because the North Koreans have been basically not answering the phone, right, from 
from South Korea. At the same time, they can try to use these things to then trade for some of the things we're going to talk about in a minute that came out of the summit on supply chains and other sorts of things. And then also at the same time, the subtext is kind of weighed out the last six to nine months of the Mugra. Is that what, is that sort of, you guys didn't put it in, in as rude a fashion as I just did, but is, is that essentially what both of you are, are getting at with regard to this? So it's a, you know, it's sort of this complex interaction of both presenting deliverables for the summit, but at the same time, there is a long-term strategy, or at least for the next year, that the administration is pursuing that is taking account of what's happening in South Korea and also what's happening in North Korea. Yeah, I think so, because we all are assuming, I mean, North Korea is so internally preoccupied and engaged in their own rectification campaign domestically. And so, you know, it doesn't look like the North Koreans have not sent any signals of an appetite for engagement. Uh, And even if they did, they would be on terms that I think the Biden administration made pretty clear implicitly that they cannot accept. And so, you know, at least for the time being, you know, maybe the reason why the Biden administration seems to be going for maximum flexibility in their North Korea policy approach is precisely because the circumstances are just so unpropitious to be able to expect any early returns on investment. But then you have, you know, the question of, well, okay, if there's an extended lack of engagement or stalemate, How do you distinguish the policy from strategic patience? And so I actually think that might be the bigger challenge uh, later in the year, you know, barring some kind of North Korean effort to shake things up. By the same token, if North Korea wants to engage, it's going to have to engage from a position of strength. And that means that it's going to it's going to have to shake things up. Why don't we take that and go to Sue and ask, what's the North Korean reaction to the summit? Yeah, so I think they are still trying to process everything because they were in a wait and see mode. As I, you know, there are some positives, right? Like the declaration that the Biden administration is built on the Panmunjom Declaration and Singapore Agreement and so on. But again, there are things that, you know, they don't like. Like there's, you know, not any indication that things will be really different, like sanctions relief or, or the Biden administration is going to offer them anything bold or big that they, they wanted. So if I'm trying to predict their moves, you know, I will see if the combined military exercise take place this year physically. I think it will be virtual. But North Koreans basically go back to some sort of measured provocations, just a little more show range missiles and things like that. Consider the South Korean domestic politics to see what the timeline is for a major provocation or extending an olive branch or some sort of charm offense through South Korea. And I don't think the North Koreans will return to dialogue with the Biden administration, at least this year, because they've said they want a big action, a big concession before even the talks could begin. And they're not getting that. And, you know, and they were reassessed by the end of the year beginning of the new year, the Moon administration, the progressives in South Korea will be increasingly nervous because they don't have any time left and the election is coming up. And then there is time, something like, you know, Beijing Winter Olympics might be a good time for them to reach out to U.S. So I feel like this year is kind of, there's COVID considerations. They're not seeing anything new or interesting or big coming out of the Biden administration. So they're just kind of going to just hunker down. And I don't, I don't think there's going to be any kind of breakthrough. There was mention earlier about one of the other things to come out of the summit was the removal of the missile guidelines on South Korea. Either Scott or Sue, how do you think the North Koreans are interpreting that? That's a pretty big deal, right? The removal of the missile guidelines. 
Well, it's interesting that that is the only thing so far that the North Koreans have actually directly responded to. And I think the concern, of course, is that they may be laying the groundwork for resuming short-range missile tests of some sort. But I think what's really complicated is that we don't know the ceiling in terms of what North Korea feels it can get away with in the provocation sphere, primarily because it's hard to tell exactly whether or how China might have imposed some kind of ceiling on that kind of behavior. But actually, the North Koreans making a statement about the missile guidelines, it, when you look at from the North Korean standards, it wasn't that bad. I mean, at least they were not lambasting the whole summit and they didn't, they, they're not being overly critical. They were just kind of really focused on just that. All right, great. Okay, enough of North Korea. Let's move to another big aspect of the summit, which was vaccine diplomacy, right? Uh, I think all of us heard from here in D.C., all of us heard from the train of Koreans that were coming to town in advance of the summit about how vaccine diplomacy, vaccine swap, vaccine donation was so important for the for the Moon government. It was a big it was almost a bigger metric for the summit than North Korea policy. How do you think that all turned out in terms of the Biden moon meetings? I mean, so we know we know what came out of it, right, which was this agreement on a comprehensive partnership, uh, the provision of at least uh, vaccines for the ROK military, those uh, working closely with the United States. But I guess let me sharpen the question. Did did Moon get what he wanted out of this? You know, he's clearly spun it very positively. But was this what they wanted? How is this aspect of the summit being viewed in South Korea when they assess the summit? I think the Moon administration wanted more, but this is sort of the compromise. This is what they got. And of course, they have to spin it. And they did. And it makes sense from U.S.'s perspective for a whole host of reasons. I mean, you know, there are countries much worse off, like India, dealing with this, you know, massive disaster. So it, it makes sense that this was a good compromise. But I think, honestly, on this vaccine front, the Moon administration was looking for more, but this is what they got. And so they just have to kind of package it in a way that so makes it look like it was successful. And this is a, you know, it's a compromise. I was worried when I heard the announcement that probably Moon didn't get as much as he wanted. But I think it was as much as the Biden administration could reasonably give. And I think that actually the provision, you know, what the Biden administration is supplying actually has grown following the summit. I know that J&J vaccines are being given to people outside of the uh, ROK military from the U.S. as a supply from the U.S. But I think actually what's more interesting is the framework for the vaccine partnership mirroring U.S. technology and South Korean production. You know, that could be very promising, but it's much more longer term. And so it doesn't necessarily have an immediate political payoff for Moon. Yeah, and it may actually benefit his successor, right, in the end, given the way these things are structured and the and the startup times. But, uh, it, you know, I think, you know, Moon has made clear he wants to be a vaccine hub, right? He wants Korea to be a vaccine hub, a producer of vaccines for at least Asia. And I guess we'll probably at some point link it to Southern diplomacy and other things, although... Again, like he, you know, earliest the time frame is what, eight months from now, they may be able to start rolling stuff off the line. But that's still towards the very end of the moon government. So, okay, um, let's move to uh, next topic is China and Japan. And so these are always big issues when we talk about the U.S.-Korea alliance. In the case of Korea, it's always about how to improve trilateral coordination. In the case of China, it's always about Korea stopping the hedging and making some tough decisions on 
on the relationship with China. What sort of progress did you think that the summit made on these sorts of issues? Yeah, I think this was uh, where the summit, you know, there was a lot of progress made. There was a big deliverable. There's this whole investment package that they announced, right? A South Korean investment in the U.S. addressing semiconductor shortages. It's really to address the dependency on China for the production of goods involving all these advanced technologies. So I thought that was received very well, right? The South Korean companies' pledges to build new chip and electric vehicle ma- uh, battery manufacturing plants in the U.S. I have numbers here, right? It's Samsung says he will spend like $17 billion to expand um, semiconductor manufacturing facility in Austin, Texas. And so is Hyundai Motor and Kia and so on. So LG, SK. So I, I thought that was a main deliverable. I know that South Koreans also, I saw that the press sort of phrasing it in a way that says, is this South Korea sort of tilting ever so towards the U.S. with what they've agreed to here with companies. So so I thought this was a, in terms of deliverables and in terms of substance, I thought this was a major area. Supply chain resiliency and functional cooperation were hugely important areas for this summit. And what I really like about that is that uh, there are tangible deliverables associated uh, with South Korea's improved alignments with the U.S. on China. I kind of feel like for South Korea, we have to look at actions rather than words in comparison with Japan, where we saw all the right words. And you know, now the question is going to be whether the U.S. perceives actions as enough or whether we also want words. And then also we have to wait and see what the Moon administration uh, decides to give back to China in the context of a future summit uh, between South Korea and China. Because I think that although we see kind of alignment with the U.S. coming out of this summit, I don't think that South Korea has yet taken Victor's advice and abandoned uh, the strategy of choice avoidance. I mean, the supply chain stuff is huge, right? It's huge. And I, I personally think it's very a very positive forward step for the alliance, right? Engaging new constituencies in the alliance, as we talked about in our CSIS alliance report. And in all these so-called new horizon or new frontiers areas that Mark Lippert and Kathy Stevens and others have talked about. So it's great. The, but the, um, to me, like one of the biggest things was the statement on Taiwan. So how significant was that? How difficult was that for the Moon government to do? You know, there clearly was some Chinese blowback. And what do you think is the South Korean strategy going forward? Like, much as I would like to believe that Korea's made choices, right, and sort of said, you know, we're going to sort of tilt more towards the United States, to make a statement like that on Taiwan and not to expect that the South Koreans are going to do something with China to to help their relationship is frankly, kind of hard for me to believe. So I'm just curious what you all think of that both. So both on Taiwan, and then what do you think South Korea is going to do going forward with China? Well, on Taiwan, I think that the statement really focused on the uh, advocacy of peace and stability on the Taiwan Straits. And I think what ends up being natural to expect in the next South Korea-China summit is uh, South Korea reiterating its view that uh, there's only one China. And South Korea has always been much more forward-leaning than the U.S. with regards to satisfying, appeasing China on that particular framing. And then the area that I'm watching in terms of the South Korea-China relationship is that the foreign minister's meeting between Chung Wee-young and Wang Yi back in April 
which occurred at the same time as the Trilateral National Security Advisors meeting, included a lot of specific overtures for China-South Korea cooperation on the economic side, including in advanced technologies, AI, etc. And so I think that it'll be very interesting to see whether there's traction on that and how China tries to return to the task of attempting to bind the South Korean economy to the Chinese economy. So I think that basically what Moon got through the U.S. ROK joint statement is actually a lot of leverage that they may perceive as usable or bargainable uh, in their future interactions with China. I agree completely with Scott on Taiwan. I hate to be so cynical about this. It's just that when they have that meeting with China, you talk about future actions. I think what we expect is sort of South Korea saying, oh, you know, of course we support one China policy. This kind of reminds me of the three no's era, if you remember that after the Thad fiasco. I think, you know, what I expect is not to take away anything from this summit, but what I do expect in the future is sort of South Korea still have to hedge and clarify the whole Taiwan statement on that question. I don't know if I'm being too hard, but I just I just think that's reality of the South Korean situation. I mean, you can look you look at the investments that were announced in conjunction with this summit, you know, in batteries and EVs, chips. And, you know, you could make the argument that South Korea is still going to do business with China, but there are certain high-value, high-end things where it's sort of laid its stakes with the United States. But on the other hand, Scott is also saying, you know, out of the meeting that took place last April uh, between the Chinese, Scott, do you think they're making commitments on AI and some of these other things that will still leave them quite vulnerable? I mean, I have heard, for example, on logic chips that South Korea has made a choice I don't know whether it's true, but that they've made a choice in terms of this. But you were mentioning on A on these other things. Do you think that the South Koreans also are hedging there too and also doing things with China in sort of these high-end fourth industrial revolution type things? Well, the foreign minister's meeting uh, back in April did not carry with it a lot of tangible commitments. And I think that uh, the U.S. actually... With the focus on technology, it does have the ability to curtail South Korean interaction on advanced semiconductors even further than might have already been done. I would also note that for Hyundai, they're proposing and launching electric vehicles uh, in both markets. And so I do think that there may be some specific opportunities that will still be played out in the context of engagement with China. But I think that what the U.S. is going to be focused on is the uh, strategic level. And there, I think that the Biden administration may feel that it has the capacity to shape the environment in which South Korean firms are making decisions. Well, thanks to both of you. That's a great sort of analysis and wrap up of the summit. I, it's, it's certainly the richest discussion that I've had on the results of the summit in the aftermath of May 21st. So thanks to both Sue and Scott and to, to our listeners, and we will talk to you again on the next episode of The Impossible State. If you have a question for one of our experts about The Impossible State, email us at impossiblestate at csis.org. If you want to dive deeper into the issues surrounding North Korea, check out Beyond Parallel. That's our micro website that's dedicated to bringing a better understanding of the Korean peninsula. You can find it at beyondparallel.csis.org. 
And don't forget to leave us a review on Apple Podcasts. That's so more listeners can find us. It's very helpful. We're now also streaming on Spotify, so you can find us there too, where you find all your music. How cool is that? And don't forget to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. This is The Impossible State.